Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Forgive me for any discombobulation. I was... uh, telling Pastor Mike before service, I was having some computer and internet issues, so here I am, no iPad, I've got paper and a book up here, and uh, was throwing some, trying to reconstruct some things, but God is still good, God is still going to be speaking, right? I ask him very, very specifically, every Sunday, usually during praise and worship, to speak through me, to anoint my lips, to speak his word clearly, accurately, boldly, and effectively. It would help this service weekly if you prayed earnestly that God would open your ears to hear clearly and accurately and effectively. Amen? So I believe God is going to speak some things to us this morning. Internet and computer problems notwithstanding. Last week I preached a message called Keeping the Faith. And I believe it's worth listening to if you missed it. I spoke about the tragic truth that most of us have uh, encountered, which is that people will confess Christ, even experience a moving uh, and dramatic conversion, and then later fall away, walk away, run away from the faith. And my contention was and is that when people leave the faith, ultimately, It's not because, I don't believe it's ever because they have been argued out of it with science, with logic, with philosophy. Uh, And it's actually not ever because, uh, or rarely, because it's just gotten too hard. It's because they want to sin. It's because they love the things of this world. You know, there's a a Chesterton quote that that I've I've repeated many times over the years, which is that... um, How does it start? Uh, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. There are people who won't step into that, who will refuse conversion because they think it looks too hard. That's different from uh, persecution. Christianity, we know the church has always thrived during hard times. So it's not that it gets too hard. It's that people won't try it because it looks too hard. People don't abandon their faith because it gets difficult. That's not the rule anyway. The rule is they abandon their faith because they love the things of this world and they don't love God enough. They don't spend enough time getting to know him. It's very difficult for me to imagine that somebody who has met the same Jesus that I met ever leaving him. Anyway, uh... And, and really, it's silly to think. I know there are people who say, I don't believe in God because of this. And they'll throw out all the stuff about evolution and science and all the scientific reasons not to believe. But, again, that's different from somebody who has believed. And then, I can't imagine, again, somebody meeting God, knowing Jesus, and then uh, any sort of science being presented to them that's going to knock them out of it. Especially, especially, and I've referenced this recently, uh, when science, and I think particularly in the fields of biology uh, and you know, the origin of life particularly, and also cosmology, the origins of the universe, uh, the, ev- the evidence is stacking up at a record pace 
for the evidence of a creator. It's just getting harder and harder to the point where some scientists say it is impossible not to believe in a creator. Now, this might be still a mile between believing in a creator and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a pretty important place to start. Anyway, the, there is, uh, thankfully, Amid all the silliness and the, the bad news, people leaving the faith, there's no shortage of people down through the centuries who've left a fine example of keeping the faith, staying true to Christ, even in the face of torture, execution. And there have been people who've died for less, right? But the other day I was remembering a song I used to hear on Christian radio. Again, back when we lived in Broken Arrow. I don't know if you guys remember this song, 40 Brave Soldiers. Anybody remember that song? It was by an artist named Tom Green. No, not that Tom Green. But Tom Green sang a song about, uh, it was a little story song about 40 Roman soldiers who were Christians and who were marched out on the ice to freeze to death. And, the, and, and it was a spoken song. The only part that was sung was the chorus. And the chorus went, 40 brave soldiers for Jesus, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. We'll be true to our God and stare death in the face Though we perish on this lake of ice, we'll be 40 brave soldiers for Christ. And it talked about, you know, the, this part would happen. And, and then at the end of the song, one man came off the ice. He gave up. He couldn't take it anymore. And then they're out there singing 39 brave soldiers for Jesus. And then one of the guards tears off his armor and runs, off to join, runs out to the lake to join the prisoners, singing 40 brave soldiers for Jesus. And I thought, man, I always liked the song. But I thought it was, was kind of corny. It was one of those you know, melodramatic songs. It was kind of, you know, it was, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a cool message. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I learned that it was an absolutely true story. You guys familiar with this? The 40 Martyrs. Uh, and it was what is uh, present-day Turkey. Uh, Sebaste, I think, was the name of the town. And it was in the early 300s, and half the Roman Empire was ruled by Licinius, while Constantine ruled the other half. Licinius, Licinius actually co-authored the edict with Constantine that made Christianity legal. Licinius was married to a devout Christian woman and may have actually at some point been converted himself. But he was known, his legacy, unfortunately, as one uh, of persecuting believers. And he sent down a rule uh, to his commanders in the Roman legions that all of them, every unit, needed to make, as a unit, a sacrifice to the pagan gods, whatever they were. And in the legendary 12th legion, they were known as the Thunderbolts, there was a group of 40 dedicated Christians they were well known, they were mighty in battle, and they had shared with one another and rejoiced with one another that they had been through many uh, uh, miraculous deliverances from God in battle, that 40, the 40 of them would be fighting, and yes, uh, the Roman soldiers, many of them would be killed in battle, but all 40 of them would survive. And they were quick to give God uh, the credit and the glory for sustaining them and preserving them in battle. They were good fighters. They were good soldiers, but they refused to sacrifice to the pagan gods. And uh, 
They were placed under arrest, and their commander had to wait a week for a tribunal, a representative of Licinius, to come and pass judgment on them. And during the week they were in jail, he tried bribing them. He tried flattering them, begging them. And, and keep in mind, he's looking out for himself too. It's not, it wasn't a good look for the commander to have 40 of your men that you couldn't get in line. And then he finally threatened them. You know this is going to go bad for you if the judge gets here. Just fake it. Just go through the motions. And they're like, we can't. We've spoken. And then they prayed. And they sang. They sang hymns and they prayed. They prayed for deliverance in the jail cell. And uh, he never could get them to bow to the emperor's will. And a week later, the tribunal sentenced them to be stripped and marched out onto the frozen lake. On the shore, he had built some hot baths, bathed in the warm glow of fire, and told them that at any time they could change their minds and they wouldn't be punished. If they wanted to come off the ice, relax in the hot baths while they recited uh, these creeds and offered these sacrifices, they'd be welcomed back. And this is what they prayed. Lord, we are 40 engaged in this contest. Grant that 40 may receive crowns and that we may not fall short of that number. Their prayer was that not one of them would fall away. There are 40 of us going into this. Let 40 of us come out of it together on the other side. They, they prayed together on the ice. They sang together on the ice. They probably weren't singing 40 brave soldiers for Jesus, but they were singing hymns and encouraging one another. They asked for strength. They asked for deliverance. And in the early hours of the ordeal, one soldier couldn't take it anymore. He ran for the shore, jumped right into one of the heated tubs, and promptly died of shock. And then the head jailer, we know his name, but I didn't write it down. He had been in charge of them for over a week. He immediately stripped off his armor and shouted, I am a Christian too. Ran to join the others on the ice. And that's where he perished with the rest. So the answer that 40 would receive crowns was answered. They didn't fall short of that number. Some actually survived that freezing night. But they were practically motionless. They were all loaded onto a wagon and their bodies were burned. One woman, her son, uh, was one of the youngest in this unit and he was near death. And uh, they told her, take him somewhere, get him medical attention, and if he recants, he may still survive. And she didn't. She just carried him along behind the wagon until he died and then threw him on the wagon. She didn't want him to miss his crown. Now, you can read more about the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. There are details that, different, that, that are different from account to account. You can read about visions that the jailer 
supposedly saw. He said he looked out at one point, there was a bright light shining down on them. Another version says he looked out and he saw crowns on each one of their heads and he wanted one of those crowns. I don't know how true that is. I don't know who would have recorded it if it were true. Uh, but the essential facts are without dispute that 40 went onto the ice, that one left, and that the head jailer joined them. And boy, you wake up on a day like today, and even though the snow was beautiful, and we can all agree it was beautiful, it was bitter cold. Seems bitter cold compared to the weather we've had. And can you imagine? I mean, I like cold weather, but I think that's a pretty horrible way to go. Standing naked on a frozen pond until you freeze to death. What I want you to see is that as they approached their fate, they did, of course, again, as anyone would, pray for deliverance. But their primary concern was that they would not betray their master. They did not want to fall short of that crown. Do you remember in Acts, after Peter and John, they ministered healing to the man at the gate beautiful, and then they were taken before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin threatened them, warned them not to preach anymore in the name of Christ. And, they got, and after this uh, confrontation, they went back to their company, and they prayed, and they spend the first most of the prayer just praising God, giving Him glory. And when they finally get around to asking for something, in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 29, we read, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Same thing. Not, oh, Lord, you heard what they threatened us with. Please protect us from that. Anything, protect us from that. Anything but that. But no, grant us the boldness to do what you've commanded us to do. Grant us the boldness to obey you, even when it's hard to obey you. Now here's where it can get kind of tricky for word of faith people if we're not careful. We believe, I believe, that we serve a God who is, self-identifies as a good and loving Father. He delights in blessing us, in healing us, right? And he has granted us authority over sickness, over disease, over circumstances that come against his will in our lives. And this is in contrast to so many, I think, uh, the, I don't know, I don't want to get too theological here, I'm not an expert on this, but what I would call hyper-Calvinism, that everything that happens, happens because it's God's will. Well, the end of that statement, I can't get away from this, and I know there are people who understand it, who can give me a, a fuller view of, of Calvinism, but if you're going to take that statement at face value, how do you avoid the fact that if, if everything happens because it's God's will, therefore God wills that some people sin? We know that's not true. We have a will where we, God can absolutely tell us to do anything. He has the absolute right, the sovereign right to command us but he will not force us to obey him. We can disobey him, and in our disobedience, we can hurt many other people. The faith message is vital to the world and to the church today because it recognizes the authority that Jesus gave us. There are some things that don't happen in our lives simply because we don't speak them. There are some things that happen in our lives simply because we don't speak in faith against them. Mountains that remain because we don't cast them into the sea. But... Uh, listen, I remember when we were first exposed to this teaching, it was so eye-opening, it was refreshing, it was liberating, but like with every denomination, like with every organization, every political party, there are going to be extremists. 
and the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, all of these uh, derogatory terms uh, have their roots in some real stories. We're king's kids, and we ought to be living like king's kids. Now, here's the thing. As king's kids, we should not be embracing sickness, poverty, depression, defeat, or anything like that as God's will for us. We should absolutely be exercising our faith for healing, for abundant provision, for restoration, for deliverance, for victory, because these are the things God has promised. But those things cannot simply be interpreted as us enjoying every facet of our lives. He doesn't promise us a life free of hardship. And we absolutely cannot rebuke persecution. Sickness, yes. Poverty, yes. Persecution, no. And since we just celebrated Veterans Day, I want to draw some parallels here. I'm not a historian. I am a history buff. And even though my military experience was primarily in the reserve forces, Army National Guard specifically, I have very specific and fond memories of experiences that were absolutely formative in my younger days. And I served in peacetime. But I can just tell you, I had, it was a wonderful experience of knowing brothers in arms. And the bonds that are formed between soldiers in times of any kind of hardship are bonds that last a lifetime. I'm still in touch with guys I only ever knew at basic training. Haven't seen them since then. That was 1983. I'm still in touch with guys I only knew at my officer basic course four years later in 1987. Haven't seen them since. And we're still in touch. And I got out. Early. I was still a first lieutenant. I hadn't quite made captain yet when I got out, and some of these guys stayed in, retired as colonels. One of them is still in as a two-star general. And still that bond that we had as junior officers remains. I was reading, uh, I'm still reading, Band of Brothers. Many of you have seen the miniseries. Many of you may have read the book. And there's a, and I'm not done with it, but I'm reading about their training and this was one of the first units that met for basic training and went through every aspect of their training together as a unit and then went through the war together as a unit. So you talk about bonding. And uh, they had some great training and they had some great trainers. And one of the greatest men uh, that they all looked up to that really helped them gel was a sergeant first class. Uh, I think it was Winters, I'm not sure. But they, they all loved this guy. And there was one guy that they all universally hated a lieutenant, of course, named Sobel, I think. And he was a martinet. He was, uh, you know, he's one of these guys that uh, thought he was commissioned uh, a general instead of a lieutenant, ordered his men around, could barely lead. They, to a man, hated his guts. And they said that the two most, most, in people, most important people in terms of causing them to gel as a unit was this Sergeant first class that they all loved, but even more, this lieutenant that they all hated. They said that their, their common hatred for him more than anything else is what caused them to gel and bond together. Now, that doesn't seem like a very Christian principle, but I do want you to see that we can bond together over our common hatred of our enemy. We should all be equally mad equally full of hate for the devil. You know, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, said in one of his psalms, I have hated my enemies with a perfect hatred. 
because he counted God's enemies as his enemies. And maybe we need to learn how to hate a little bit. We love God, we love our neighbor, we love one another, but we better hate the devil. I've told this story before. I had to, I'm going to have to cut this. Me- I'm going to have to split this message into two. Sorry, but I, I, I did hear this. Uh, there was a guy who asked, uh, "Huh? It'll be into three. Yeah, you're right, into three. Sorry, <laughs> this is number two, right? Thank you for the correction, <laughs> Mr. Wizard, mathematician <laughs> over here." <laughs> Uh, yeah, I read a post from a guy who puts a lot of funny stuff on, the inter- on, on Facebook. He said, I was on an airplane, and the stewardess asked, is there a doctor on board? And I said, well, I have a Ph.D. in mathematics. She says, well, I've got one guy having a heart attack and another guy who's choking. He said, that's two. Okay. <sighs> what was I going to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a guy, there, I was in a class one time, and one of the students, I wasn't teaching it, uh, but I was listening uh, to, to a fellow instructor, and one of the students says, uh, does God hate the devil? If God is love, does God hate the devil? And, and the teacher goes, I don't know, that's a good question. And I just wanted to stand up and scream, yes! Well, how can God, who is perfect love, hate anybody? You have to look at the biblical definition of love and hate. When God when it says God loves you and loves everybody, doesn't mean he approves of everything you do. Doesn't maybe mean he think, finds you warm and fuzzy or the most pleasant person in the world. It means he's dedicated to your good and your success. He's for you. Love is an action. What is hatred? Not just a mean feeling towards somebody. It's I'm dedicated to your failure. I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to bring you down. You better believe. What did Jesus come for? To destroy the works of the devil. That's hatred. That's godly hatred. All right? So we know our enemies. We unite in our hate. Uh, anyway, I enjoy, I, can, I watch movies and I can read books, uh, documentaries about great actions, the battles, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. But I'm actually more drawn to the stories that talk about the men who served, their personal struggles, their crises of leadership, that sort of thing. Um, and I'll come back to that. I'm going to save part of that for next week. But I mentioned uh, last week or the week before the Congressional Medal of Honor and how uh, we would go from training range to training range and there'd be a little plaque, this, uh, this rifle range, this grenade range, this whatever it is, uh, is named for Private So-and-So. And it's almost in every case a Medal of Honor winner. And in a uh, <laughs> simple majority of those, it was a posthumous award posthumous award, or as I, I like to pronounce that word, posthumous, awarded posthumously. In other words, they died. They received the Medal of Honor, but they were already dead. They died performing the action that got them the Medal of Honor. And you read the action, and this is kind of one of those tropes, it's one of those, um, you know, it, it's acted out and stuff, maybe in the movies, maybe in stories, it was even in the Captain America movie. Uh, but this happened more often than you, than you might believe. You'd read these citations, and you know what they were? A guy throwing himself on a grenade. They're in a fighting position. An enemy grenade lands in their midst. One guy covers it with his helmet, then covers his helmet with the body and absorbs the blast. Why? Does this guy think he's going to win the war by doing this? Is he doing this to save the United States of America? Is he doing this for flag and country? No. 
He's doing it for his friends in that fighting position. This is an accepted doctrine at training. Uh, I mean, we're talking about training and doctrine command recognizes this and teaches it that men, by and large, women, people, don't die for great causes in, in battle. They give their lives up for the people on their right and the people on their left. Now, and in the aggregate, it benefits the whole country, benefits the whole army, the whole navy, the whole Marine Corps, uh, Air Force, and the whole nation reap the benefits of that. But you motivate people. This is why you have battle buddies. This is why you get to know small unit tactics. It increases not just your effectiveness, but these bonds of brotherhood and friendship so that we will fight harder because we're fighting for one another. For the pe- when we know the people we serve with, we also understand that even in situations of torture, to break faith with the United States of America is to break faith with my battle buddy, with the members of my squad, my platoon, my company. Now, I know that there are thousands many thousands of people who have been traumatized by their war experiences, and I'm not diminishing, diminishing their sacrifice and their hardship in any way. But I also know, and you do too, that for many people, the greatest period of their lives was the, where they were in the middle of experiencing that kind of hardship, even traumatizing hardship. There's a, a friend of mine. We were... Uh, uh, fighting position buddies for one of the longest field exercises. Got to know each other real well. He's, he, uh, I knew him at uh, my officer basic course, not at basic training. But he, uh, as a fairly recently retired colonel, he was in the Battle of Mogadishu, um, immortalized in the movie Black Hawk Down. He was the commander of the rescue force that rescued Task Force Ranger that was stranded when those helicopters went down in Somalia. And later, he was a battalion commander during some of the fiercest fighting in Iraq during the global war on terror. He lost men in both of those conflicts, and every year on the anniversary of their deaths, he posts something about them on Facebook, honoring their memory. Here's something he wrote years ago as part of a larger article. He said, The reward for all the terrible things I have seen in combat is the ability to cherish all the great things I see around me. Now, that may be just another way of saying you have to experience the valleys in order to appreciate the mountaintops. But seriously, if we live in a constant state of bliss, it's kind of hard to appreciate, at least on this side of heaven. We live in a mortal world that is fading away, and this is not our home. We are made to enjoy greater pleasures than this. And that's not even the direction I want to go. That might be a whole other sermon, not even as part of this series. What I want you to see is this, and I will share it once again in one of my favorite passages from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's First Circle. I've shared this before over the years, but let me read it. It's just a paragraph or so. And I had it dog-eared. It is long, it, it, it's, it's introducing a, a character, a uh, man who had been, I think, a major in World War II, and these are just in the few years following it. His name is Shagov. Shagov. 
and he uh, uh, is a proud veteran. He said once uh, she had heard a young graduate student who was out to humiliate Shagoff ask him with a, profound, a, pr a proud lift of the head, what backwater are you from? Shagoff had looked down on the student with a sort of lazy regret. Rocking quietly back and forth on his heels, he answered, you have never had the chance to go there. I'm from a province called The Front, a village called Foxhole. And then here's the paragraph. It has long been known that our lives' stories do not follow an even course over the years. In every human being's life, there is one period when he manifests himself most fully, feels most profoundly himself, and acts with the deepest effect on himself and on others. And whatever happens to that person from that time on, no matter how outwardly significant, it is all a letdown. We remember, get drunk on, play over and over in many different keys, sing over and over to ourselves that snatch of a song that sounded just once within us. For some, that period comes in childhood, and they stay children all their lives. For others, it comes with first love, and these are the people who spread the myth that love comes only once. Those for whom it was the period of their greatest wealth, honor, or power will still in old age be mumbling with toothless gums of their lost grandeur. For Nersian, prison was such a time. For Shagoff, it was the war. Now, there's some things in there that I don't think should apply to Christians. We should never be able to look back on a time and say, ah, everything else is going to pale by comparison to that. But do you get what he's talking about? And, and there's negative and positive applications to this. The football hero, hero who lives, who does nothing more for the rest of his life than relive his high school football memories. Uncle Rico, man, if I could just go back to 1985, I could win the game and my whole life would be different. But you look back at these hard times, and I will wrap up with this. I didn't even get to my scriptures today, and I've got them. Special service. God's ministered to us, right? In my, I, I, I did not, again, I served in peacetime. But basic training was still hard. I've shared with you, I think, the past. The, the first two days were such utter culture shock. I mean it. For 48 hours... All I could really think about, I'm doing my best to pay attention. I don't want to have to do any more push-ups than I have to, but I was on the verge of tears. And all I could really think about was, how do I get out of this? This is the worst mistake of my life. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know how I'm going to get out of here, but I'm not staying. After 48 hours, I began to realize, wait a minute, thousands of guys do this every year. Surely I can suck it up for a few more weeks. This ain't going to be fun. And then, you know what, after a few more weeks... Some of it started to be fun. And you know what really made the difference? Friendships. Bonding. The shared hardship. And then even the hard things became something we would look forward to. A new challenge. Now, and as and we move toward the end of the cycle, and you're getting good. You're in the best shape of your life. You've got all this raw energy of youth. And we're going through some things, and we're learning some things, we're getting skillful, we're getting, there's friendships, there's stories we would tell. This was basic training. Challenging other companies to push-up contests, contests, just yelling, just showing how motivated we were. It was fun. Just felt like I belong here. It's a great day to be a soldier. Fast forward a few years. This is one of my fondest memories from Officer Basic Course, and these were great guys. Most of my class were West Point graduates, and they were really were top-notch, cream-of-the-crop 
American men. And we would be out in the field for extended time. And we're preparing for a night mission. We're not going to even move until midnight. And we've got time to kill to get ready. So we'd have little fires. And everybody would uh, we'd just start, I'm just talking our platoon, or maybe half the guys in our platoon. We'd get around this fire, and we'd get our canteen cups. And whoever had coffee, whoever had hot chocolate, creamer out of our, out of our little MREs, we'd just dump them into a few cups and make this thick, highly caffeinated stuff and pass it around. And we'd just share. Just pass the cups around, drinking it, and we'd tell stories. We're getting each other psyched up. We'd start singing songs. Stupid. Then we'd kind of lay back, try to get a little bit of rest. Somebody starts singing a song. We'd start singing along with it and laughing when somebody gets the lyrics wrong. And there was just this moment of gearing up to go out together that just was this incredible bond. I've just, lie back, I've never known such great men. And yet, at the best moments of basic training, at the best moments of IOBC, and there were people who felt like this even during wartime. They've never felt closer to anybody, never felt more, more fulfilled. I can tell you this, at any point, no matter what was going on during basic, during officer school, there was no point, no matter how much fun I was having, no matter how much I was enjoying it, when I wouldn't rather be home. Do you see what I'm saying? In that moment, during those moments, I was where I was supposed to be, doing what I was supposed to do, training to do things, learning what I was supposed to learn, fulfilling a purpose. I was in the right place, but there was always some place else I would rather be. This is how it should be with us. If we do this thing right as believers, as disciples, as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will always sense that we are in the right place, doing the right thing, even when it's hard. We realize it isn't the hardship. This, the hardship is part of the glory of this. We're going through this together. And we are growing together. And because we are going through this together, we are effective and others are drawn to us. And we can say with all honesty, even in the hard times, this is where I belong. This is fulfilling. This is joyful. But at any moment, we ought to be able to say, but I'd rather be home. That's the difference between thriving in this world and loving the things of this world. That is the one central point I wanted to make today. There's more, and we'll save it for next week now. But I want you to see that. We can thrive, we can walk in God's blessing, but never let God's blessing and the joy we experience cause us to love the things of this world more than we love our true home. We were created for something else. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. You know, Jesus, I mentioned this passage last week, he didn't just, just say, follow me. He said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Stand up with me.
make one more war movie reference. Probably my favorite war movie is 12 O'Clock High, Gregory Peck. I know, I'm an Army guy, and it's an Air Force movie. Actually, I guess technically an Army Air Force's movie at the time, right? Army Air Corps. Anyway, how many of you have seen that movie? Anybody seen 12 O'Clock High? There's this uh, Gregory Peck, uh, General Savage, and by the way, based on a true story. Every one of the main characters of this has a, has a counterpart in real life. But he has to come over and take over this, uh, this bombing unit that is suffering uh, too many losses. And he's given him a speech, and he says, we've got to get this job done. We've got to knock out these sub-bases, blah, 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 blah. He says, consider your, going forward, he says, stop thinking about getting back home. I know you're afraid, but stop thinking about going home. Consider yourself already dead, and you'll find it easier to get the work done. It'll take the edge off the fear of death. And boy, I really do think there's something applicable there. God loves us. He cares for us. He created us with the capacity for desires, but also warns us that he's the only one that can properly fulfill those desires. And yet, sin has corrupted those desires, and he says, you know, when you come to me, don't try to mold your belief or your following me into something that's going to fulfill your desires. Consider yourself dead. Start over with me. Consider yourself dead because you are dead. I won't just fulfill your desires like you think they need to be filled. I will give you a whole new life with righteous desires. And as you pursue me, pursue me, that's where you'll find that fulfillment. You try to just be saved and fulfill your sinful desires, you'll be the mo one of the most miserable people in the world. There are sinners that are going to be way happier than you. Sell yourself out. Take up your cross and follow him. Here's my question. Anybody need to do that today? Two categories I'm talking about. One, you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord. You've never confessed him as Lord. I don't know if there's anybody in here that fits that description, but if it's you, don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. Come up and confess him as Lord today. Second category of person. You made a confession of Jesus Christ because you're afraid of hell. Same reason I made a confession of Jesus Christ. It worked. God got a hold of me. He got my attention with hell. But you realize you've been treating it more or less like fire insurance. And what you're dedicating your energy to is finding your fulfillment practically anywhere other than in him and his work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. You'll find your, your, what you are risking is falling back in love with the things of this world and abandoning the faith. Keeping the faith doesn't have to be a slog. It's not going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be hard. And yet at the same time, you won't be tempted to walk away from it because you find a community, a band of brothers and sisters who are committed to Jesus, who are committed to the truth, and who are committed to you. This is the best organization in the world. This is the best company to be a part of. The brotherhood, the body of Christ. If you need to recommit, I'm not asking you to question your salvation, I'm asking you to question his lordship in your life. Examine it. Have I really 
taken up my cross? Have I considered myself dead? Called my life his life. If you need to make that decision, come up here right now. Heavenly Father, you know the hearts of every man, woman, and child in this room. If there's somebody who doesn't know you, and they need to know you. Cause them to recognize that need today. If there are people in here who have confessed you as Lord, confessed you and received you as Savior, but they've never really surrendered themselves to your Lordship, oh, help them to see the grandness of life lived under your Lordship and spark in them the desire to completely submit to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song as soon as they start singing. Come up here and let me pray with you about those things, okay? Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.